HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Appeal, helping you enjoy your fruits and vegetables at peak freshness and reduce food waste. Learn more at appeal.com. This episode is brought to you by Essex Market. Essex Market is New York City's most historic public market, proudly located on Manhattan's Lower East Side. Find the freshest produce, meat, fish, and specialty foods from over 30 unique vendors. Learn more about the market's family of small neighborhood businesses at EssexMarket.nyc. HRN is a nonprofit podcast network. Our 40 weekly series are powered by a remarkable community. For 11 years, our shows have been recorded from our beloved shipping container studio behind Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This March, our lives, like those of so many across the world, were transformed. HRN's family of hosts, engineers, producers, and administrators packed up our microphones, portable recorders, and laptops, and have been tirelessly working from homes in the U.S., U.K., and Mexico ever since. Our recording setups might look a little bit scrappier, we might sound a little different, but food radio has never been stronger. The food community at HRN and beyond has been through so much, and we are committed to staying strong and focused to forge a hopeful future together. Help us keep the most enriching conversations in food media going for another year. Become a member of HRN today. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and join this exceptional community. Although lots of people are eager for the end of 2020, 2021 still presents many open questions, not the least of which is how to create a more sustainable, resilient, and equitable food system. With support from listeners like you, our team at HRN is able to report important stories that investigate the ever-changing world of food. This episode does just that. We look back at the food and agriculture policies of 2020 and explore what 2021 has in store. This year has exposed pitfalls in food production and deepened the inherent connection between food and politics. To get our bearings in the current state of food policy, we take a look at the enduring effects of the Trump administration's environmental and agricultural beliefs. Then we try to predict where the pendulum will swing once President-elect Biden takes office— 
assessing where the new administration stands on key food system issues. We look ahead to the 2023 Farm Bill and track the potential for new legislation intended to improve food sovereignty for Native communities. Finally, we examine the rise of regenerative agriculture and the role it could play in the effort to curb climate change. Our year in review shows the power food has wielded in shaping our past and its potential for shaping our future. I'm Katie Mosman Wadler, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three. As we look to the future, preparing for a new year and a new president, it is important to understand how Trump's presidency will continue to affect us. From environmental rollbacks to changes in agricultural policy, the Trump administration has reshaped the food industry. In this segment, we join Eating Matters host Jenna Liute in conversation with Civil Eats reporter and host of The Farm Report, Lisa Held, to zoom in on the lasting impact of the EPA's lax regulations surrounding pesticides. Over the past four years, the Trump administration, mostly via the EPA, has dismantled major climate policies and rolled back even more rules around clean air, water, wildlife, toxic chemicals, you know, some of those kind of important things. And we don't have time to obviously go into all of them, but like I'm wondering if you can kind of pull out a couple of the scariest rollbacks, you know, in in your opinion, and just tell us a little bit what happened there. Maybe starting with the dicamba-based weed killers. I think pesticides in general, um, there have been quite a few rollbacks that have definitely had an impact and will continue to. So dicamba was a big one. It is an herbicide that was found to drift a lot and destroyed millions of acres of farmers' crops all over the country over the last few years um, because the herbicide was essentially drifting onto fields that were not resistant to it. So a court in, I want to say it was over the summer, maybe July, um, ruled that essentially the EPA had uh, rushed their approval and and had kind of um, understated the risks of dicamba and said farmers have to stop using it. It's just, it's causing too much damage. It's too dangerous. But uh, very recently, I, I think in October, basically they they did come back and said, okay, actually, Everyone can go back to using dicamba-based weed killers for the next five years, which people were just really shocked by because it had done so much damage. I'm going to probably ask you this question 12,000 times over the course of this interview. Like, why? Why would they do that? I just, you know, these pesticides do things like cause brain damage in children. So, I mean, what's the upside there? (laughs) There's a lot of evidence that this is definitely a business situation decision um you know these are some of the you know biggest companies in the world that are putting pressure on lawmakers not just you know president trump but on like every senator every representative donating to their campaigns there's just so much money in agricultural chemicals that it's definitely a uh (laughs) a factor, if not the factor. And actually, the New York Times um, documented an investigation they did that uh, drew direct lines between pesticide industry executives 
in contact with the USDA. And that happens, by the way, like under every administration. But I think the Trump administration has made it just kind of like taking it to a new level, basically. Right, right. right. Like, let's be honest. I don't think that the like food safety regulations in the U.S., like in the American food system, have ever been particularly our strong suit. Um, <laughs> but right. it seems like this administration also seemed even less invested. I think everyone in this space is looking at what a Biden administration is going to do. In in my world, I'd be, you know, looking specifically at like what that looks like for climate and agriculture policy. You know, is it going to be carbon markets? Is it going to be, is he going to sort of bring the smaller uh, farm organizations that represent kind of the more alternative uh, <laughs> farms and, and less of the corporate players into the conversation, things like that, just as the change in power transition happens, I'll definitely be paying attention to that. To learn more about how the Trump administration has drastically changed our food and farming policy, listen to episode 168 of Eating Matters or find the link for Lisa Held's article, How Four Years of Trump Reshaped Food and Farming, in the description. President-elect Joe Biden isn't likely to roll back environmental and agricultural standards the way Trump did, but it is yet to be determined whether the incoming administration will strive for a progressive vision or push for a return to the pre-2016 status quo. In addition to reflecting on the past four years, Lisa Held is thinking about what the future holds. Hear her insights in an excerpt from HRN's What Doesn't Kill You, hosted by Katie Kiefer. I always read civil eats. I don't know if everybody else is tuned into them, but if you don't support civil eats, please let me urge you to do so now. Lisa, being a senior policy reporter for them, recently published an article on September 21st uh, that was all about uh, sort of the Biden campaign platform as it relates to climate change and agriculture. So um, Lisa, tell us, what are you hearing about that? Tell us what that platform looks like. Well, a good place to start is, you know, on climate change overall, the rhetoric between the two campaigns, Republicans and Democrats, it couldn't be more different, right? So um, President Trump has expressed doubts related to climate science in the past and has largely removed the word climate change from our federal government's vocabulary, including at the USDA. On the flip side, Democrats have made the climate crisis a front and center issue across the board. And, you know, in terms of shifting away from fossil fuels, expanding renewable energy, And they're really paying attention to agriculture and how farmers can mitigate climate change in a really big way, more than ever before, I would say. And the Biden agenda and the the Democratic Party's 2020 platform both include a zero emissions goal for agriculture and a lot of attention to increased investment in conservation practices and some specific plans on how to get there. So when you when you talk about some of the strategies um, that he is mulling over on this platform, uh, whether it's you know additional conservation stewardship incentives or something else, who who is in his ear? Who is talking to him? There's some disagreement in the party about like what the right steps are to address the issue, and I think people kind of understand that in the Democratic Party there is a range of um, opinions on other issues like you know healthcare, and it's the same kind of thing with climate and ag. There's sort of the super progressive approaches, and then on down the line. And I think 
I mean, in terms of who has his ear, so far, it seems like more of the conservative wing of the party has has kind of been in Biden's ear. Um, his his main advisor on ag is Tom Vilsack, who was the agricultural secretary under President Obama. But he's now the CEO of the Dairy Export Council, which really represents the interests of the biggest industrial dairy farms in the country. Yeah, I yeah. found that quite troubling, to be honest with you. I mean, I'm I'm way over Tom Vilsack. Once he moved into the lobby and once he took that revolving door and went right into supporting Dairy Farmers of America, which is this, you know, for people who aren't following dairy, it's a giant quote unquote cooperative, but is largely responsible for the tanking of the dairy industry in the United States. So I, I don't love Tom Vilsack, but I appreciate that he had some progressive stuff going on because he had Kathleen Merrigan as his deputy secretary who introduced the one, you know, your farmer, know your food uh, program, which was much touted by the Obama administration. I wanted you to remind listeners what measures the USDA has funded to mitigate climate change in the last, say, 10, 12 years. Um, that would be uh, EQIP. I forget what that stands for. EQIP. Mm-hmm. Tell me again what that acronym is for. It, uh, and then the conservation uh, stewardship incentives. Yeah, sure. So um, EQIP and, and CSP are two of the most popular USDA conservation programs for working land. So EQIP is the Environmental Quality Incentives Program and CSP is the right, con- thank <laughs> Conservation Stewardship Program. Both are, are really popular and have been through Democratic and Republican administrations for some time. And I think that's actually one area where I think Biden definitely supports expanding those conservation programs, both to just in- increase investment and, and provide more funding, because especially EQIP, year after year, there's way more demand for funding than there is money to go around. To learn more about Biden's potential plans for agriculture programs like CSP, EQIP, and others, check out episode 323 of HRN's What Doesn't Kill You. You can also read Lisa Held's article, In a Year of Climate Reckoning, Where Does Joe Biden Stand on Climate and Agriculture? for an expanded look at the different interests at play. Links to both can be found in today's episode description. Coming up after the break, we learn why 2023 will be a significant year for U.S. agriculture. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Here at HRN, we care about reducing waste across our food system, from farms to home kitchens. We know that about half of the produce we grow ends up in the trash. We all want to enjoy produce at peak freshness and reduce the amount that gets thrown away. That's where Appeal comes in. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. It's edible, invisible, and imitates how peels naturally protect fruits and vegetables. Because here's the thing, less waste doesn't just mean we're throwing less food away. It also means we waste less water, energy, and other resources that go into growing produce. Appeal works with nature to reduce waste across the food system from the farm to the kitchen. Appeal helps us conserve our precious resources to ensure we have fresh food to meet our growing need. Appeal. Food gone good. Learn more at appeal.com. Essex Market is a historic public market located on Manhattan's Lower East Side. The market's 30-plus vendors source thousands of unique products, like locally made Jersey cheese to Nordic smoked specialties. 
This holiday season, Essex Market is offering five carefully curated gift boxes. Feast on the finest products from their family of small business owners. And that's great news for the team at HRN because we're always searching for unique gifts this time of year. Plus, these gift boxes are available for nationwide shipping now through December 18th. Send a taste of New York City to your loved ones both near and far and get 10% off when you enter promo code HRN10 at checkout. Visit shop.essexmarket.nyc to learn more and to start sending some food-filled holiday cheer today. Welcome back to Meet and 3. As many Americans count down the days until Biden is inaugurated, some are already looking ahead to 2023 when his administration will pass the next farm bill. Dylan Hoyer takes a look at some long-term policy priorities for tribal communities. I think we're at a moment of time where there's a lot of acknowledgement of past wrongs, idea, uh, the idea of reconciliation, um, how do we get into ideas of systemic racism and injustices, but we really need to take those conversations, acknowledge them, and turn them into action. Meet Colby Duran, the Director of Policy and Government Relations for the Intertribal Agriculture Council. Its mission is to pursue and promote the conservation, development, and use of agricultural resources for the betterment of Native people. The Farm Bill is a critical opportunity to advance this mission. It's the primary piece of federal legislation governing food and agriculture, and it's only passed once every five years. As soon as that 2018 Farm Bill was passed and the ink was just about dry on, on it when it was signed, we already were thinking towards the 2023 Farm Bill because we know that those uh, pieces of, of legislation, those ideas take years to develop. The Biden administration will start developing the legislation as early as 2021. Colby is advocating for policy provisions that will strengthen food systems for tribal nations. And that starts with growers. So some of the things that we're looking to do really center around deferral of principal payments uh, for producers that receive uh, federal loans um, for their production. Deferring the principal payment on a loan and allowing farmers to simply pay interest gives growers more time and flexibility. What that does is it really acts as a way as keeping localized food production going on, investing locally in those producers so that they can provide that food locally to the people that are right around them. The need to strengthen regional agriculture has been a part of the national discourse during the pandemic. But these issues are especially pressing for indigenous communities. If you were to look at a map of where tribal governments are located, where their lands are currently located, um, where there's food insecurity uh, throughout the country, that means low access to grocery stores or transportation to stores that, to purchase food or to markets, those maps fit right on top of each other. However, if you take the map of where food is being produced in Indian country and where tribal producers are producing food, it fits on that exact same map. So we have to address that problem of the broken food system to where there should be no reason why there is a producer producing or growing or raising food right across the street from a place where someone is going hungry and doesn't have access to that. Colby believes that making loans more accessible to Native producers is the first step to achieving a broader vision of food sovereignty. A lot of uh, 
Tribal communities and tribal governments exist in both places that are food deserts, have food insecurity, but are also credit deserts. And so like what what would end up hopefully happening in, in something like this is that you would be able to provide additional support for someone to grow their food. Then they would be able to build out the infrastructure where they would have a place to do any type of additional work that needed to be done to turn it into a consumer product. And then you would have the place for that food item to be sold to a, a customer right there locally, which reduces costs, helps address some of the um, issues of transportation, and continues to invest money locally in that community. To learn more about the Intertribal Agriculture Council, visit indianag.org. Plus, keep your eye out for an upcoming episode of The Big Food Question, all about food policy priorities for the Biden administration where Colby will speak at greater length about agriculture and food access in tribal nations. In our final story this week, Matan Dubnikov digs into how soil regeneration stands to define the future of American agriculture. More than ever, Americans are voting with their forks and supporting local, organic, and minimally processed food production over large-scale industrial farming. Through engaging media like documentaries, consumers have learned about agriculture as a powerful weapon in combating climate change, encouraging social equity, and restoring land integrity. As we continue to rethink our agricultural systems, centuries-old indigenous foodways and a growing body of science point to the practice of regeneration. Regenerative agriculture is a form of agriculture, which is, you know, land management, where over time, the land is getting healthier, which ultimately means the plants and the humans that are feeding off that land are getting healthier as well. That's Ryland Engelhardt, the executive director of Kiss the Ground. Regenerative agriculture centers around the health of the soil, Adopting practices that encourage organic matter credited with an array of benefits, from increasing profitability to drawing down atmospheric carbon. And agriculture could go from the most destructive system on the planet, arguably, to the system that could be the great redeemer. That we could actually take the problem of too much carbon in the atmosphere and turn it into a solution of healing and gluing our soils back together with the carbon glues that plants could sequester and put back into the soils and that we could hold that carbon in our soils for a long time, creating balance on the planet. Kiss the Ground recently launched a feature-length documentary on Netflix of the same name. The film stars celebrities including Tom Brady and Jason Mraz, as well as pioneering scientists and innovative farmers who are leading the conversation on regenerative agriculture. Yet, this is by no means a groundbreaking moment. Both the film and the organization represent a growing awakening among producers and consumers who are realizing that the food we eat plays a big role in our carbon footprint. As someone who'd been in the food business, I saw, oh my God, we could have the world get behind a movement that would not only balance the climate, but also could be about healing and regenerating our bodies. We could actually balance that imbalance that we created. And that was the first time that I had ever made that connection of 
how the carbon cycle and carbon sequestration works. And in turn, we started gathering people. Me and one of my childhood friends started gathering people in my living room for a year to just figure out how we could spread this message. And uh, that, that working group turned into a nonprofit organization called Kiss the Ground, uh, whose mission is to awaken the possibilities of regeneration. We create uh, media uh, to tell stories of regeneration. We create educational courses to give people further education in whether it's gardening or advocacy or into farming, but courses that give people access to learning and becoming educated so that they can be the, the voice of the regenerative movement. Despite its promise, the narrative of regenerative agriculture often neglects generations of Black, Indigenous, and people of color who regenerated the soils with sustainable practices centuries before they became popular in modern farming culture. To this day, aftershocks of whitewashing American food production leave cultivators of color disadvantaged and cast out of the spotlight. When we think of regenerative agriculture, organic farming, agroecology, permaculture, these are all really just fancy terms to describe ways that Black and Indigenous folks have been growing food for, for generations. I think a big part of it is is just kind of this co-opting that we see in a lot of different ways of, you know, Black and Indigenous folks doing the work to to create these systems and then white organizations or white individuals just trying to, again, um, replicate white supremacist culture by by taking away that power, taking away the the name, taking away the history and and rewriting this narrative. That's Melanie Allen, the program director of the Black Farmer Fund, a community investment fund providing access to land and finance for black food entrepreneurs in New York State. I think it negatively impacts them in in a lot of ways when it comes to being able to have the capacity to to grow all these inequities, this whitewashing, this co-opting, this not acknowledging or really centering those that are impacted most in places of access to financing and decision-making. It's a cycle that will constantly keep going. Now we're beyond the point of talking about it and there needs to be more action. A new phase for agriculture is beginning to answer the call. The Black Farmers Fund and other organizations are providing financial opportunities and hundreds of acres for people of color and indigenous communities. Across the country, the number of farmers is decreasing and the average farmer's age is going up. But a growing body of over 300,000 young, diverse cultivators is challenging big ag and embracing healthy soils, healthy food, and a healthy climate. Here's Ryland again. The opportunity for a more localized food system, a more diverse food system, an opportunity for young people, people of color, indigenous people, really there's a huge opportunity for a diverse young population. And again, one of the challenges we'll face is, you know, how are we going to, what are going to be the mechanisms to allow for this next generation of young people to get onto land and get set up to where they can be uh, producing food in a new way that really is honoring the earth and, and regenerating soil. 
The biggest opposition to the shift towards regeneration comes from big oil and agrochemical corporations representing hundreds of billions of dollars in pesticides, fertilizers, farm equipment, and engineered seeds. And their influence is all but guaranteed to endure. On December 8th, President-elect Biden nominated Obama-era USDA chief Tom Vilsack to serve as the Secretary of Agriculture under his administration. While Vilsack upped funding for organic farming and defended food stamps during his term, he holds a shaky reputation with black farmers and is credited with cozying up to agribusinesses and GMO manufacturers. There's a lot of invested infrastructure in keeping the channel of that business going. And, you know, those are some of the biggest industries in the world, knowing that the enemies have been built over a long period of time by, you know, incremental decisions that, you know, some may have been malicious, but I'd say most of them are just people doing their job, serving, you know, the need to create greater profits, which ultimately squeezed people and the planet in a destructive way. But from their desk or from their spreadsheet, they weren't present to that. And so they could justify it and not be connected to their destructive impact. Regardless, Americans are coming to terms with the need for sustainable food systems like regenerative agriculture to evolve as a climate forward nation. The Biden administration pledged to invest in sustainable practices that sequester carbon and reduce emissions. But with Vilsack's nomination, it's a roll of the dice as to how the future president will address the status quo. I think the, the thing that we have to reckon with is, you know, the United Nations and, you know, say we have 55 harvests left based on the current system in its practice that we're most proud of in our conventional high calorie producing big ag system is destroying future life on planet Earth. So it's not that it's inconceivable that we can't feed our population on a different model of agriculture, but it is going to require a new thinking. Albert Einstein said that we can't solve the problems with the same thinking that created them. And I think this is one of those transformational moments that we are at when it comes to rethinking our food system. To learn more about regenerative agriculture, investing in diverse farming, and changing the food narrative, check out the links in the show notes. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks this week to Ryder Bell, Tosh Kimmel, Armin Spengen, and Matan Dubnikov. Meet and Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Kat Johnson, Matt Patterson, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out. <laughs>